Father, magnify your son, we pray. Give us a vision of a life with him in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know who Michael Phelps is. Uh, Michael Phelps is a decorated Olympian, the most decorated Olympian of all time. He's won 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. But what you may not know is what it took to get him there. In preparation for one Olympics in particular, Phelps did 75 workouts in 24 days. Uh, from 1997 to about 2006, he averaged 10 workouts per week. He said that all he did was eat, sleep, swim, and lift. Uh, he would have pool workouts from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. He would swim almost 50 miles a week, uh, and he would consume some 12,000 calories a day. Why? Why would you do this? Why would you go to all this trouble? His answer, quote, my goal was to win one Olympic gold medal. Michael Phelps disciplined his body, put it through rigorous training. Why? Because of the hope of future glory. The future hope of glory caused him to discipline his life in the present. And so, brothers and sisters, so it is with us. The story of Michael Phelps is an illustration of a core biblical principle, namely that future glory fuels present obedience. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for or because he was looking to his reward, right? Uh, it was the land of milk and honey in Canaan before them that led the Israelites to continue wandering in the wilderness. And of course, we know it was the joy set before Christ that caused him to endure the cross. And so do you struggle to get on in your love for Christ and love for his people? Do you find it difficult to press on after having experienced some kind of hardship? And to my unbelieving friends that are here, again, thanks so much for being here. Do you see a world of brokenness and are tempted to give up? And you want to see it right. Well, building on the power of the cross and the first fruits of the resurrection, hope in future glory in order to be strengthened for present godliness. That's the big idea this morning. Hope in future glory in order to be strengthened for present godliness. That's what we're going to think about this morning. That this morning we're going to come to that conclusion from Romans chapter 8. Just a little bit of context here for Romans 8. We're picking up midstream. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He started in chapter 1 with creation. He's narrowing it down to heaven in chapter 8. He's trying to help the church in Rome and by extension us understand how the whole world comes together by faith in Christ, trusting him. Just before this passage in Romans 7, he's talking about his own struggles as a Christian and, and what he's going to do is going to help us see how to be motivated to keep going, to press on in following Christ. And that leads us into our passage this morning. Take a look at Romans chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Okay, there's a thousand things that we can consider here, but what I want us to kind of look at is I want you to take a look at those first uh, seven words in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. On my sabbatical, three years ago, I was reading through the New Testament, just circling verses that were counseling hope in heaven, and this verse literally stopped me in my tracks. It was not what I expected to read. So what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of look at everything around verse 24 to try to get deeper into verse 24. Four points this morning. Here's the first. Salvation comes by the hope of glorification. That may surprise you a little bit. Salvation comes by the hope of glorification. All right, so starting back up in verse 18, Paul says all of creation is groaning. It's groaning because the Lord subjected it to corruption as a consequence for the fall. I heard you guys talking about the fall earlier this morning. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God and go their own way, God subjected creation to corruption. Now you read about that in verse 20. When they chose to rebel against God, sin, death, corruption, it enters into the world. Creation, in other words, was sort of like a tall, fresh, cold glass of water where just a tiny little drop of poison went in and corrupted the whole thing. And that, by the way, is how death and disease and corruption and brokenness, that's how it came into the world. Brokenness, friends, is not the consequence of socially constructed ideas. That's a man-centered way of viewing the world. Corruption, brokenness, these things are the consequences of a world that rejects the good authority of God and wants to go its own way. And so creation eagerly longs. And it longs to not just return to what it had in Eden. More than that, it longs to give birth to the even greater glory it will have in the new heavens and new earth. Look at the end of verse 20 again. In hope, it says, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So so creation is growing under its bondage to corruption and it wants to obtain, it wants to get, quote, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what creation is looking to, to be set free. Now we ask the next question, well, what is that? Right, what's what's, uh, this freedom of the glory of the children of God? Well, look at verse 23, that's our answer. It is not only creation that groans this way, but also uh, those who hope in Christ. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that creation groans and eagerly waits for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the glory of the children of God is full adoption as sons and daughters. 
And what is full adoption as sons and daughters? The redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. We just finished a little mini-series at Restoration Church about our bodies. It's not something we Christians think much about, is it? I'd love that you have the resurrection on your logo and this verse behind. I love that, by the way. That's what creation is hoping for, longing for this full adoption, resurrection of our bodies. And in case you're confused because you thought we Christians had already been adopted, we'll take a look back up in verse 15, and you can see that, yes, we who are in Christ, we have been adopted, but we are only experiencing the first fruits of that adoption. The full privileges of our adoption are realized when we receive the freedom of glory, verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, or in a word, glorification. Glorification. Glorification for the Christian is when, like Jesus in his resurrection, our sanctified soul comes together with our glorified body. That's why we as Christians believe in both body and spirit, glorified body and spirit. We have the first fruits, those of us that are in Christ, we have the first fruits of that adoption spiritually now, but we wait for the consummation. We wait for the restoration. We wait for the glorification of our bodies to be aligned with our spirits as we look to the hope of our glory in Christ. Just a little illustration of this. A couple in our church, Jeremy and Taylor Wisner, they adopted a child from Korea, and they were given the rights. They were given the legal rights. That was their son. But they didn't have him yet. He was theirs, but they had to go to Korea and go get him. That's sort of the way it is with us. God has us, those of us that are in Christ, that are trusting, repenting, and believing on Christ alone for salvation. We have been given legal status. We are his and he is ours, but he still has to come and get us. This is what John talks about in 1 John 3 when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be like him. Jesus has his resurrected body. We see him. We'll be like him. So Jesus, friends, died for sin. He rose bodily for sin. He ascended to heaven and will return bodily to bring heaven to earth. This, friends, is the final stage, the full adoption, the full redemption and restoration. This is our hope, right? It's our hope. This is heaven, glorified bodies worshiping a glorified Savior on a glorified earth. Creation is longing, groaning to see this come about because creation knows that it will be glorified on that day too. There you have the final state of a world completely restored, glorified. And it is after this meditation that Paul has in verse 23, it was after this, that we get those words that floored me. I'm reading through my Bible, and I come to verse 24, and it says again, in this hope, we are saved. I don't know about you guys, but that, that was not what I expected to read. In this hope. Paul says that it is the hope of glorification in which we are saved. Now, Bethany Baptist, does that surprise you a little bit? It did me. It did me when I first read it. Here's why it floored me. Okay? Think about how often we share our testimonies right? in healthy, gospel-loving churches. Maybe go back to your last members meeting where you heard testimony about how someone was saved. What is it you are correctly, I want to emphasize that. I don't want PJ to come and tackle me up here. What is it you're correctly listening for about how someone was saved? You're, you're correctly listening to see if they understand the doctrine of justification, right? 
You're correctly listening to see, do they understand that it is only by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work and in his resurrection that his righteousness can be transferred to them as their sin is transferred to Christ on the cross? That's what you're listening for, right? And that, of course, is not wrong. That is exactly right. The reality is, though, folks, in Christ right now, you will never be more justified than you are right now. How about that? Go talk about that at lunch today. You are never going to be more justified than you are right now. But we all know something's missing. Something's not quite right. We still lack full redemption. We still lack full adoption. We still lack glorification, right? This is why Paul goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, we don't hope in something we already have. We have we have justification. That's what he said back up in Romans 8.1, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those in Christ, we already have justification. We don't need to hope in it, but we do not have glorification. Not yet. And that's why Paul says that this is the hope in which we were saved. Listen to how J.A. Packer puts it in his book, Knowing God. Here's what he says. He says, he says, Justification, this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is, a, is wonderful enough. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Think here, glorification, full adoption. Adoption is a family idea, he says conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the church, and justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater. And that's what we have in the fullness. What's what we have in adoption that we have in part now but will be completed then. We as Christians are people of hope because our hope, our certainty is not yet realized. We do not have what we want. And there's some instinctive lever. I mean, those of you that are not Christians, you want this too in a way, don't you? You want something to be right. You want the world to be made right. Here's your answer. Resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth because of the resurrection of our great Redeemer, Jesus the Christ. Again, in a word, glorification. Or in another word, more commonly used, heaven. Heaven. God and man dwelling together in the finished state. Now hopefully now, by now, you can see why I was floored at reading that. Paul says the hope in which we were saved was the hope of heaven. Glorification. And I wonder how much you're thinking about heaven. I don't know about you, but when I go and talk to my people, they don't think much about heaven. And yet Paul's saying, that's the hope in which you're saved. Okay. First thing we've seen so far, salvation comes by the hope of glorification. Second point, here we go. The hope of glorification is the fuel for sanctification. The hope of glorification is the fuel for sanctification. Look again at verse 18. Paul's talking about present sufferings. These sufferings, they tempt us, right, don't they? Sufferings tempt us to give up and walk away, don't they? Right? 
Sufferings tempt us to give up, to walk away. Or he might be tempted that the presence of suffering equals the absence of God's love. We're tempted to think that and to walk away from him. Well, Paul moves from discussing that, discovering suffering, to discussing glorification, as we've already rehearsed. And that is the consequence, guys, for verse 28, which many of you know. And we know that for uh, those who love God, all things work together for the good of those that are called according to his purpose. That's the context. And after this, we get that verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? What? Who could be against us? That's right. And he lands his argument at the end of this chapter by declaring that nothing can separate us from what? The love of God. Exactly. In other words, you have the acknowledgement of weakness at the beginning of his argument. You have the acknowledgement of suffering being counseled by the fact that God is not only doing something now, but he is working it all together in his love to bring us to glorification, to bring us to heaven. And you can see that in the middle of the argument in chapter 8, verse 31, when he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he what? Glorified. There it is. Present weakness is informed and inspired by future glory. We can't be separated from the love of God. He's working all things together for one great end. Future glory. His glory manifest. And us inside of that. Therefore, Paul's instruction to us is to have us consider our justification in the past at the cross. This gives us confidence that future glory is coming. Therefore, that compels us to be faithful in the sufferings of today. You catch that? I think the kind of preaching I grew up on, we're always looking back at yes and amen. But there's this temptation to think that when I look back, I kind of have to pay off what God did, kind of pay him back for what he did for me. That's not the gospel. Paul's saying, look back at the cross. There's your justification. Look forward to their future glorification and let that fuel you for the now in sanctification. One wise observer put it this way. Well, let me back up a little bit. He says that, that's, that goes back to that notion of what Hebrews 11 is talking about, right? This is what faith is doing. Abraham, right? Hebrews 11. Abraham did this. Moses did this. David did this. One wise observer put it this way. He says, if you want to build a boat, don't go collect a bunch of wood and assign tasks. Paint for them a vision of the immensity of the sea. That's what I want to do with the remaining portion of this sermon. Paint for you a vision of glorification so as to compel Bethany Baptist Church to press on amidst all of life's turmoils that you would see that glory in front of you and it would fuel you to be obedient. So I want to give you a vision for that glorification. That's what we're going to do the rest of our time. So first off, I've said uh, salvation comes by looking back at our justification forward to our future hope of glorification. The second thing I said is the hope of glorification is the fuel for present obedience. Next, let's now consider why heaven is so worth it. Here we go. Third point. Heaven is glorious because God is glorious and God's there. <laughs> Heaven is glorious because God is glorious and God is there. Once again, look at verse 18. Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes again to explain all that we went over. The glory of heaven, the glory of a resurrected earth, uh, 
populated by blood-bought, resurrected bodies of the, of the redeemed, basking in the glow of our glorious King, Jesus the Christ who laid his life down for us. In other words, Paul is saying that if you look, if you took the suffering that we have to experience both spiritually and physically in this world, in this time, and you compare that with the coming glory, he says no contest. No contest. It's foolish to even compare the two. It'd be like saying, let's, uh, let's weigh a ballpoint pen and a 2021 Ford F-150. It's not even worth it. Like, do we need to do that balancing of scales? No. It's not even worth comparing. Our present sufferings are so light in comparison to the future glory. He's saying that heaven is so great that suffering in the now is worth it. Another illustration that he uses there, you picked up on it in verse 22, and I'm going to walk with fear and trepidation on this one, is childbirth. All right? I don't know what it's like to birth a child. I've been in the room of two children that were born by my wife. I, I respected my wife before. I respect her even more after that. Right? But what he's saying here is he's using that illustration. If you were to go ask my wife, was that tremendous trepidation, was it worth it to have your sons? What would my wife say? Most of the time. She'd say yes. Right. <laughs> yes, she would say yes. She would say yes. Right? And those of you that have children, right? I love this. I love what you guys say about let them cry, man. Let them be here. Amen. These children are a joy to us. But they came through trial, came through tribulation, right? Paul is saying the same for the coming of heaven. We are in right now. We are in the pain of childbirth. But a child, in other words, a future love is coming. It's worth the pain. It's worth the pain to keep trusting him and following him. And the return of Christ, when he comes and establishes peace, establishes love and justice on the earth, when evil is vanquished, sent away to everlasting punishment, and we put on the, our everlasting glorious bodies and live on a glorified earth, it will be so amazing, like childbirth, these present sufferings will be worth it. I know you guys are going through a lot. I don't know you, but I just know that that's true of humanity. Cancer. Car accidents. Murder, heart attacks, persecution. We prayed for those 17 missionaries, martyrdom, mockings, depression, shame, what other, whatever other physical sufferings. They are not, listen, they are not even grains of sand in comparison to the immensity of the mountain of the Lord in heaven. Same with spiritual suffering, guys. Doubt, the struggle to obey the Lord's commands. The struggle to memorize scripture, to show up to church on time. Pray for my church on that one. <laughs> to love neighbors, the struggle there, to love neighbor, to love enemy, to pray, to fast, to forgive, to give, to prefer others than ourselves, to evangelize. All these struggles, these sufferings, they can't even said to be flickers of light in comparison to the light of the sun. All of these sufferings, spiritual and physical, they are momentary feathers in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. Soon enough, beloved, your back pain, your cancer, your depression, your shame, your guilt, your struggle to do as Jesus would have you do, soon enough these struggles will cease and you, beloved, will rest on the shores of the Jordan River. It'll be there soon enough. You will eat honey and drink the milk of the new Canaan. You will sing the songs of the angels. You will bask in the glow of a glorious Jesus that makes it possible 
for his everlasting glory. You will work. You will have a job in heaven. Isaiah 65 teaches us that. But you're going to love it. You're going to love your job every single day. You're going to love working in heaven more than you're looking forward right now to that Sunday nap. You will. <laughs> you will attend church and it will not put you to sleep. It will not bore you. It will be fantastic. Thanks be to God, it will be filled with people that are not just like me and you. It'll be filled with people that are so diverse, all different kinds of backgrounds, with all different shades and textures of hair and tonal languages coming together like a symphony on full blast for our great treasure, Christ the Lord. Amen. That's what's in front of us. We will eat the choicest foods and drink the richest of wines. We will take walks on roads that will blow delicate breezes across our glorified foreheads. The light of day will never fade. There's no night there. The light of day will never fade as the glory of Christ will shine brightly forevermore. The way that I try to imagine this is you see that light coming in right now. There's no sun nor moon in heaven. And so therefore this light coming in, we can imagine that's the light of the glory of Christ in heaven. Isaiah tells us that those who wait upon the Lord, our strength will be renewed. We will mount up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint. I can run up mountains and not be tired. That it'll, be, it'll be like that. The soil that we will sow in will be drunk with the glory of Christ. The air that we will breathe will be drenched with the excellencies of Jesus because God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He will be all and in all because the dwelling place of God is with what? Man. And that leads us to the most important part of heaven. Heaven is the household of God. He is its fancy. He is what makes it glorious. Apart from him, there is nothing but darkness and decay, but with him we have our all in all. Christ himself in his resurrected body is the darling of heaven and we will be dazzled by his infinite love which will be infused into every aspect of the new earth. This is the great hope in which we were saved, right, beloved? If, if even the worst, listen, if even the worst of our experiences here on earth cannot compare to it, then most certainly the best of our experiences do not compare to it either. Therefore, listen guys, don't live for this world. Set your minds, as you heard PJ pray a moment ago, set your minds on things above where Christ is, not on things of the earth where rust and moth destroy. Be dazzled by heaven's darling, by Christ. And live to be at home with him, for that is the hope in which we are saved. That. It is in this hope that we will then also grow and persevere in the faith. Don't buy the trinkets that the world's trying to sell you, beloved. Do not buy them. Resist the visions of the good life that this present world of darkness is deceiving you by. You will never have enough money. You'll never have enough vacations. And you'll never have enough friends or family members or job titles to compare to the glory that is coming when Christ returns. The more this vision for your life takes over and sinks into your heart and becomes your great hope with which you live, the more you will know the joy of your salvation. Build your treasures in heaven, beloved. And friend, if you're not a Christian, repent of sins. Trust in Christ that you might know this and live for this all of your days. All the other glories are going to fail you, including 23 gold medals. 
I told my church last Sunday, right next to us is a circle that has a statue in it and, uh, of this guy named Isaac Ward. And I said, could you imagine if you were to do so much in this world that you would get a statue of your body in the middle of a circle in the nation's capital and you would go around it? That would be great, right? And everybody said, yeah, that would be great. And I said, all right, tell me, who's Isaac Ward? <laughs> Nobody knows or cares. So don't live for this world. Live for the one to come. Live for the one to come. Where the heavens, darling, knows you by name. Amen. How about that? Mm. Okay, final point. You're saying, all right, I'm with you, Nathan. I got you. I see what God is saying to me. We've seen first off that salvation comes by the hope of glorification. We've seen that the hope of glorification is the fuel for sanctification. Thirdly, we've documented that heaven is not worth comparing to the present sufferings of this world because it's so glorious. And so now I'm going to apply it. How do we do this? How do we get on in this hope of heaven? I'm going to give you four brief ways, four applications. First, y'all knew this one was coming. Join and meaningfully participate in a local church. Some of you are sort of new to the face. You're like, really? That, that, that's your point? Yes. If we are going to be oriented by heaven, we need to be meaningfully committed and acquainted with heaven's people. Just like if we wanted to know what life was like in, say, Bolivia, and we knew over there in somewhere, some other corner in southeast L.A., there was a bunch of Bolivians. What would we do? We would go over there, and we'd hang out with them, right? We'd learn. We'd eat their food. We'd sing their songs. We'd listen to their stories. So in the same way, meaningfully join a local church, which is a suburb of heaven. Heaven is downtown. Here it is. This is a suburb. This is heaven's people, and we'll be home. So come and get acquainted with heaven's people now. Notice, guys, you say, where's that, Nathan, in Romans 8? Notice all the we's, W-E, all the we's in Romans 8. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption. Verse 24. For in this hope... We were saved. I'm going to let y'all do this one with me. Verse 25. But if we, yeah, hope for what we do not see, we, wait for it with patience. We. Yes, Jesus saves us individually. He loves us. He knows us individually. Yes and amen. We can have a personal relationship with him. Yes and amen. But Christ does not save us alone in order to keep us alone. Right? Like any adoption, you were chosen uh, so as to be brought into the family. And his church is his family. I've never met a Christian in all of my life. I've never met a Christian that is thriving and doing well apart from a local church. That is faintly connected to it. I've met tons of Christians. Maybe they're Christians. that confess to be Christ but struggle to get on. And they are faintly connected to a church. A healthy one. To neglect the church or to keep her at arm's reach is to, is to do the same to Jesus because it's his body. Cyprian of Carthage, who died in 258, said that you can no longer have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. Remember what, that it is the church. We who are the church, we are citizens of heaven. We are the redeemed out in front of time. We are previews of coming attractions, singing the songs of the angels. Our life together is supposed to be an appetizer for heaven. And so if you want to grow in your love for Christ, you want to grow in this hope of heaven, move in. Don't just date the church. Commit to her. 
Join a church. Watch how the Lord can grow your vision of heaven by living amongst its citizens now. Think of that church covenant. You have a church church covenant. PJ, right? Y'all have a church covenant. Of course you have a church covenant. PJ's church. So, so you think of that church covenant sort of like Michael Phelps' training plan. That's your training plan for heaven. All right. Second point of application to grow in hoping in heaven to fuel you for now. Second point, learn to wait eagerly. Okay. You see it in verse 23? Take a look down. See it? Verse 23. There it is. Learn to wait eagerly. Now, that sounds like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Waiting eagerly. Here's what's interesting. That word in the Greek for the word wait there in this passage, same word as the word hope. So the image here is not likened to waiting in a doctor's office wherein you're just sort of sitting there waiting for some action. It's a kind of hope-filled eagerness. You're kind of ready. It's waiting or hoping eagerly. So when I was on sabbatical, we went to some spring training games. My, my, my family is a big baseball family, and, and, and we love the Cardinals. We went to a spring training game, and my youngest son, who was nine at the time, he saw, like, he would, he would run up and try to get foul balls. And he would try to go get autographs. Like, we wanted, we wanted Yadier Molina's autograph so bad. And we would stand there, and he would wait, and he would be sort of like this on his tiptoes. You know, like this. That's the image. That's waiting eagerly, looking in the dugout. Who's coming out? Tiptoeing. Waiting eagerly. The only difference is, though, we know the superstar is going to come. And he's far better than Yadier Molina. Too, too, don't say that too strong, but never. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. That's right. So think about this, guys. Build rhythms into your life that you can wait eagerly. How do I do that, Nathan? Ask the Lord to come soon in your prayer life. Ask him to come. Two, this is one of my favorite ones. When you take a walk in this beautiful city that you guys live in, stop and stare into the eastern sky and think, maybe today's the day. I've done that, and it's so good for my soul. I just stop. If you were walking by me, you'd think I was crazy. But I just stop, and I just stare, and I just look. And I'm just looking, and I'm like, maybe maybe right now. Maybe now. Okay, not now. Maybe now. Now. Oh, come back. Come back. Okay, I'm going to go on. That's teaching to wait eagerly. Y'all did this so good today. Y'all sing, uh, harp, uh, oh gosh, Harps Eternal. It's one of my, I can't even name the song. It's one of my favorite songs. Sing songs about heaven. Sing songs about heaven. Wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Don't be found asleep. And friend, you don't know. If you're not in Christ, you don't know. Jesus says he's going to come like a thief in the night. In other words, you're not going to be, it's going to be too late. Be ready now. Third point of application. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. Now this sounds more like what waiting is, right? Waiting patiently. You can see Paul's counsel to wait patiently there in verse 25, right? This is, this is really hard, waiting patiently. How do we wait eagerly and wait patiently? God wants his children to be eager about his return, but he wants the expectations of his return to be appropriate. For Christmas one year, we, we gave our sons one day in Disney World and one day in SeaWorld. They kind of matched both my kids' personalities. And every day from that day to the day we gave it to him to the day it came, Especially as it got close. What do they do? How much longer, Dad? How much longer, Dad? When they're driving there, how much more? How much longer? How much? That's not waiting patiently, right? <laughs> it's not waiting patiently. 
It's tough to do, to wait patiently. It's hard. We need to eagerly anticipate it, but we need to legislate that anticipation by trusting Christ to come in the fullness of time. And that's hard, right? It's, right, it's been 2,000 years. So how long will it take for our patience to wear thin and destroy our eagerness? So one of the books I read on my sabbatical when I was thinking about hope in heaven was a big old tome that PJ would probably read in 30 minutes called uh, Saints Everlasting Rest. And listen to what he says about this notion of whether or not, it seems like Jesus is not returning. He's not fulfilling his request. Listen to what Baxter says. He says, quote, as God has established the four seasons, so they come at the same time every year. And just as God promised to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt after 400 years, so did he come in that time. And just as Daniel promised that the Messiah would come in 77s of years, so did Jesus show up exactly at that time. Baxter goes on to remind us that, quote, as God has given the stork, the crane, the swallow to know their appointed time, he will surely keep his time. When we have endured a hard winter in this cold climate, will not the revival of spring be seasonable? In other words, every single thing, God has answered every promise. There's one left. We can trust that he's going to come in the fullness of time in his appointed time. Finally, and I'll close with this. How do we build hope in heaven? Glorification for present sanctification. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, attempting to construct a vision for the Christian life in heaven is kind of hard, right? It would be easy, wouldn't it, to say you want to be a lawyer, go down to the local shop down there, you know, that lawyers go to, sorry, lawyers, whatever those things are called, their offices, and watch what lawyers do. I live one in four D.C. residents is a lawyer, so I feel like I have the right to say that. If you're a scientist, right, you say, go, go down there and watch what the scientists do. Right, and you can see it and kind of get a vision for it. Hoping in heaven is a little bit more difficult, though I do think that we can get some little glimpses. And so here's what we need to do. What we need to do is to consider Jesus. When you read the Bible, study him. And listen, don't just study him like a subject in school. Study him as a lover. Like, I don't know. I can give you quite all kinds of things about my wife. She was born on March the 18th, 1977, you know, in Georgia. But that's just about him. But I can tell, like, like, PJ might know Andy, but he doesn't know Andy. Right? You've got to know Jesus like that. Learn to know him. See what he loves. See what he hates. Consider his miracles and understand those miracles to be little previews of heaven. Consider what gave him joy. Pay attention to what happens to his life after the resurrection. See what his body is like. See what he's doing. And then map that onto a view of creation that takes away all of the bad and enlivens all of the good. And there you have some help to get going. Consider Jesus, the resurrected and reigning Jesus, the one that triumphed over sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension. And soon enough, he'll return and death will be no more. Consider him, think about him, look at him, study him like a lover. And he will be our chief delight in heaven and that's what you're gonna be doing anyway there. And it's gonna be great. And so if we're gonna change Bethany Baptist, if we're gonna change, really change, 
We are going to have to learn how to rehearse our justification as a down payment on our future glorification so that we might get on in our present sanctification. It will be, uh, it will be by gazing longer at the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. And soon enough, church family, we're going to be there. We'll be home. We'll be home. In all of the struggles, all of the trials, all of the difficulties where you might be tempted to give up, when we get there, you'll look back on this time and say, it was worth all of it. I only wish I did more. It's worth it. He's coming, and it's going to be amazing because he is amazing. Christ, our Lord, our King, is coming. Maybe it'll be today. Maybe by the end of the service. And it will be so worth it. Trust him treasure him because this is the hope in which we were saved let's pray father forgive us for the ways in which we do not set our mind on things above thank you that you forgive all of our sins in christ i pray for those that do not trust him that they would come to trust him I pray for those of us that do, that we might gaze upon heaven's darling and we might learn to know what it is, what it means, what it looks like to hope in heaven, that we would understand that our future glorification is the fuel that will drive us home. And we pray finally, Jesus, come soon. We want to be there. We want to be in the new Jerusalem. Bring it soon. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.